0: Greetings, mainly fans, one and all. Long timers are from away. Welcome. It's great to have you with us. Gio hoj to our new fans joining us from Ireland, and hi hi to those of you in Norway. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Today's show is the first ever on-the-road edition of Mainly History to be released, although not the last, I promise you. Fittingly, I went to the Maine Historical Society in Portland to talk to its deputy director, who I've been fortunate to work for and with on many a project in the past. Our conversation today was about the ongoing exhibit at Maine Historical, a multi-part exhibition called Northern Threats, showcasing several centuries of fashion in Maine. Just like some of our other episodes dealing with topics like folk art or vintage baseball, I think this one might surprise you in terms of how looking at supposedly ordinary items or activities can tell you a lot about a community's past. The exhibits themselves will get promoted in the episode, but I'll say right here that everything we discussed, you can see for yourself at the Maine Historical Society right now, or if it's in the second part of the exhibit this fall. As always, if listening to this episode made you cotton to this podcast, you should follow, rate, and review us so the algorithms give us a bigger nudge. You like my cotton wordplay? I bet you thought I was going to go with something predictable like unravel or unspool or something like that. The surprises keep on coming, so let's do this. guest today is Jamie Kingman Rice, Deputy Director of the Maine Historical Society. Jamie, welcome to Mainly History.
1: Hello, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So great to finally talk to you. I'm up here because the Maine Historical Society is having a huge two-part exhibit, Northern Threads, showing so much of the Society's collection. Why does the Maine Historical Society have so much clothing? I mean, of all the things that the State Historical Society could collect, how did it come by these?
1: Well, we've been collecting historic clothing uh, pretty much throughout our 200th anniversary, but this, this is our 200th year, uh, 2022, 1822 to 2022, and we decided to do a two-part exhibition in commemoration of that anniversary that features two centuries of historic clothing as a kind of a way to draw our relationship to our two centuries although the clothing on display and our anniversary are not the same 200 years but we really wanted to show an unexpected aspect of our collections for that anniversary and so while we've been collecting historic clothing throughout our history there hasn't been a lot of attention drawn to that it's been sort of a hidden gem of our collecting institution
0: so MHS has a lot of clothing. Yes. So how did uh, MHS come by all this clothing, Uh, especially the older pieces? Is this something that people have donated? Uh, Is this, you know, lock buys? I know you've been involved in in some aspect of that acquisitions as well. Yes. So
1: we have been collecting clothing, as I mentioned, uh, throughout. Initially, our focal point was really early 19th century and we inherited, for lack of a better word, quite a few key pieces from the Wadsworth and Longfellow family when we were bequeathed the house in 1901. And so that was early 19th century and we attracted uh, gifts. Related to that same kind of time period. And so the collection remained relatively small until 1993 when we were gifted a large collection from Westbrook College, which is no longer was absorbed into the University of New England. And they had a fashion program there and gifted a significant amount of clothing to Maine Historical Society at that time, which really shifted our collecting focus to the early 20th century. So we have a nice kind of breadth. Most of the materials that we have in the collection are gifted. We do occasionally purchase pieces with strong main provenance, but uh, by and large have been gifted to the organization.
0: The earliest items in this exhibit are from the 1780s. How long did this particular era of fashion last from the 1780s, in terms of, you know, if people are dressing a certain way to be in style in the 1780s, you've got the latest fashion from like 1785 how long is this going to remain in fashion
1: fashion so there is a segment so the northern threads is a two-part exhibition the Mm -hmm. first part is about 1780 through the 1880s Mm -hmm. the second installment is 1890 through 1980 and in each we have a vignette called silhouettes in sequence that Mm -hmm. demonstrates a timeline of garments starting with a piece that's actually circa 1775 an english court gown which was not worn by a woman in Maine, but represents sort of the style of the day, which remained relatively similar with limited evolutions until you get to the end of the 1790s, where you start to see a real shift in the silhouettes. At the turn of the century to 1800, brings in the Empire period, so influences by the Empress Josephine of France, where you see sort of the long, sheer muslin's Empire waist, very high waist, which is a marked difference from what you see in the 1780s. the sort of wider colonial gown, when everyone thinks sort of colonial era gowns, what they think of to a, a shift to those more uh, Greco-Roman-inspired kind of uh, long, lightweight silhouettes.
0: Ah, uh, so anybody who watches like Pride and Prejudice, or Jane Austen's era set pieces, right. is it's going to be, that's Empire. Exactly. So okay. after,
1: after about the turn of the century to about what we would be, the War of 1812 here in, in the new United States, you see that sort of those, um, the shift. And then as you get into the 18-teens and the early 1820s, that's where you'll see uh, ensembles that you might see in shows like Bridgerton or, or, as you mentioned, Jane Austen movies or, or things like that. So there's a, a marked difference. As you get into the 1830s, you see the silhouettes get larger, so take on a little bit of, of a return to those fuller skirts, wider silhouettes, but the 1830s has a really unique and identifiable trend of the gigot sleeve, the really puffed, balloon, leg of mutton sleeves that are closely associated with that decade. And that's an area that Maine Historical Society's collection is particularly strong in the
0: 1830s. Okay. One of the new shows out that people have been watching is Gilded Age. They're uh, those pretty like strong bustle game ensembles Absolutely. in the collection here.
1: Absolutely. So there are several different vignettes in part one, as mentioned, the silhouettes in okay. sequence that show the evolution of women's wear. Then we have the 1830s gigot sleeve, and we also have a section on bustles. So the, there's about a 20-year period, 1870s and 80s, the, the sort of the golden age of the bustle, and different evolutions of the bustle throughout. So we have a vignette that features the different types and shows sort of what lies underneath. The hoop skirts, the crinolines, the bustle pillows. How were these silhouettes made?
0: Speaking of uh, golden ages, I saw, uh, looking at the exhibit, Samuel Freeman's really stylish embroidered waistcoat. For men like me, who like to wear a good waistcoat, right. when was the golden age of colorful, snazzy waistcoat fashions and other menswear?
1: Well, in respect to the collections here at MHS, they are the 1780s to about 1800. After the turn of the century, men's clothing starts to um, move away from the colorful embroidered kind of over the, what we would think as a sort of over the top dressing. So Samuel Freeman's waistcoat from the 1790s uh, is embroidered and these types of materials would have been imported into Maine. So not necessarily made in Maine, might've been brought from places like England or France yeah, in pieces and constructed here, but that kind of embroidery work was done abroad. Okay. So the, the golden age of that, as far as this show is, 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 is was to be the latter quarter of the 18th century.
0: A few years back, did you, uh, did you see uh, the MFA in Boston? They had a clothing exhibit on Casanova's time in, in Europe in sort of the mid-18th century? I
1: saw it online, but I didn't see it in person, unfortunately. Uh, uh. But certainly, I mean, there's, there's um, centuries of mm-hmm. really you know elaborate menswear. And, but as you move into the 19th century, it starts to become more classic in its color, and, and a little difficult in some ways of, of being able to really pinpoint, because uh, ensembles could be wear, worn for decades without mm-hmm. much of a change in, in menswear.
0: I think a lot of people might assume that old means homemade when it comes to clothes. And so one question I have is how much of a role did the global market play in these early pieces up through the, the Civil War in terms of where the fabrics and other you know buttons and accessories might have come from? Are we talking about a main family of middling means in, say, Yarmouth or something? Are most of their clothes going to come from, from pieces, you know? made in Maine versus in New England versus stuff brought in from overseas.
1: I I think one of the things that this exhibit is trying to showcase is that people in historic Maine had both an interest and access to fashion, and not necessarily those who lived on the coast, but people who lived inland or what one might consider a more rural community. And part of that global market is how these materials were accessible. We have some stellar pieces from early Eastport, 1830s Eastport, which is an era where the shipping increased in Eastport by nearly 800% in the 1830s because of rejuvenated trade with Great Britain. So you're seeing a lot more silks at this time were imported, embroidery as I mentioned was imported, so the global market played a really big piece of that puzzle. And then the domestic market as well, when cotton becomes a robust uh, American staple and the advent of the cotton mills in New England. So people were getting their fabrics and their fashion ideas from all over the place, not uh, as, uh, as insular as one might expect for um, early statehood.
0: And I guess this is a, a pretty specific question, but I mean, New England in the early 19th century is associated with whaling. Uh, are there pieces in the MHS collection that have like whalebone accessories? You know, buttons or other, uh, or other accessories, or is that not present?
1: Well, whales, uh, whalebones were certainly used for corsets. Oh, okay. um, our collection is rather limited in corsets okay. and necessarily, but the whaling industry obviously did play a really large role in corsetry and uh, other underpinnings, okay. as it were.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so mentioning uh, specific women's items, before the 20th century, there was an accessory for women known as a, the pocket. It was kind of a, you know, a lightweight bag worn around the waist, usually over the top of, of dresses to, to carry a, a woman's possessions. since pockets weren't sewn into dresses. Does MHS have any of those in this collection?
1: At present, I'm not aware of any of those particular items, but uh, I think probably in relationship to pockets, and something that is on exhibit that I find pretty interesting is that in our military uniforms from the early 19th century, there were pockets in the tails of the dress cotee. Mm. So I found these, we do have some uh, hidden pockets, uh, or uh, extra pockets, as it were, but the currently the collections, as far as women's wear, Um, the pockets are are pretty limited
0: so what is what do you think the soldiers were putting in their tail pockets was this like I don't know was this for like money clip like what are they
1: it could be for personal items or it could be that just anything that one would carry in a pocket whether it was um you know weaponry or pieces accoutrement that, that you needed for service but most of these are dress coats mm. that at least the ones that are in our collection so i would say probably personal items maybe a a small journal mm. or a, a photograph well for the 1830s a little early for that but right. you know a small journal or other kind of personal effects that you would tuck into is there's pockets on the cote itself but they're more decorative
0: mm. okay
2: Can you believe that? Even men's military dress coats had more pocket space than most dresses on sale today.
0: So unfair. That's why I thought this would be a good time for you to share the good news with the listeners.
2: You think your listeners see an ad break as good news?
0: Well, they probably appreciate that it's good news for me that this show has advertisers. But it's also good for them. Because even though fashion has evolved over time, what hasn't changed is women's love for pockets. Because you have a lot of stuff to carry. And that's why I wanted to bring you, Robin, who happens to be my wife, to spread the word about the Pockets Project.
2: The Pockets Project is a collection of dresses with deep pockets that aim to bring attention to the gender disparity in pocket sizes. Founder Julie Siegel, a friend of mine, designed a line of dresses with deep pockets that can hold everything from our most prized possessions to our lip gloss. Because women deserve deep pockets, both figuratively and literally. Agreed. Each dress in the Pockets Project initial collection of five styles is named after a favorite snack food, from clementines to ginger snap cookies, so you can stay fueled during adventures near and far. A dress with Pockets is also a great gift if you have a lady in your life who appreciates functional fashion. I know I do. Visit PocketsProject.com and use the code MAINLYHISTORY for $25 off your first purchase between now and September thirtieth, two 2022. Again... The website is pocketsproject.com and the code MAINLYHISTORY will give $25 off your first purchase through September 30th, 2022.
0: So what is the Pockets Project dress that you own?
2: I own the clementine in emerald green and have stored many things in its spacious pockets, such as tissues, car keys, mints.
0: You love M&Ms.
2: And M&Ms
0: yeah and it looks good on you especially when you're carrying m and
2: everyone looks better when they're carrying m and that's true so this summer you can declare your independence from having to carry around your stuff in a purse when out in a dress
0: unless you happen to have a companion sporting cargo pants talk about a golden age of fashion
2: no need check out the pockets project today
0: So you mentioned photographs. You're not really getting those until really the 1840s. Right. But in terms of of decorations and imprints, in terms of people's clothing, when do you start to see more decorative imagery on some of the the clothes? I mean, we're well away in time from cartoon characters on T-shirts or right. something. But at what point do you start seeing things like birds or other kind of iconography of of kind of pictures on outerwear?
1: Well, the embroidery for sure. I mean, you can see a lot of different iconography or representations, plants, flowers, animals those types of things in the embroidery. Okay. We do have a graphic t-shirt uh, exhibition coming up in the fall as oh, part of the second half. Okay. So we will see some uh, t- what one might expect as for graphics, uh, mostly 1960s forward. But as far as imagery on clothing, the embroidery for sure, in the time period that's currently on display. Uh, the signature garment, Hannah Adams' dress that serves as sort of the um, the... The signature piece for part one is heavily embroidered uh, and it's actually a Boston made dress that she embroidered Mm. herself. She was from Belfast, Maine. And so that piece is probably, uh, well, it's definitely one of the signature garments in our collection.
0: What year did that? That That is from the 1870s. Okay. So where you mentioned there's iconography of, you know, flowers and animals and what, was there any, because certainly from the 18th century on, there was a growing market of iconography of like characters from the new newly popular novels and other fiction on things like teacups and whatnot. Do you see any of that by the 19th century in terms of on clothing? Is there something like Uncle Tom's cabin, you know, gloves or, or something like that? Or uh,
1: Not in our collection okay. specifically. Okay. We, we don't have anything that is representative uh, of that. But I will say that one of the main reasons why we were able to do this show is we received in 2017 a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to uh, process, catalog, rehouse, and photograph the garment portion of our collection. Mm-hmm. We loosely divide our collection into three categories, garments, military uniforms, and accessories. So the military uniforms and accessories, uh, we hope to see sort of a part two of this project. and. Um, It's possible that there could be gems hiding in sort of in plain sight in the accessories collection. But from the garment portion, uh, we don't have anything in the collection with that type of iconography. Definitely more flora and fauna type uh, imagery, which seems to be pretty on par for the day, mid 19th century.
0: One thing the online part of this exhibit does really well is it points out that in some ways there's clothing for different stages of life in this first century covered, right? 1780 to 1880. One of the ones that stood out that I think many moderns haven't heard of was breaching uh, for for young boys. And so this is not relating to being born or anything like that. So could you tell us a bit, (laughs) so what is, when a young boy has his breaching, what does that refer to?
1: Before the early 20th century, children's clothing was more gender neutral and dresses for young children of, of, any, of any gender were ideal, uh, easier, more functional for a variety of different reasons. But around the age, and this can vary from child to child, but around the ages of maybe like four to six, when a young boy uh, transitioned into trousers, into pants, and that was known as breaching. So it's sort of an age where one might imagine that it corresponds with bathroom habits, Mm -hmm. but um, once uh, the boy uh, was uh, ready for trousers, that was known as breaching. And and again, that can vary by age. So we have a small boy's suit that's uh, probably for the age of maybe like a four-year-old that demonstrates that, and we also have a a young boy's dress in the collection, which Mm -hmm. is probably for a similar age, to demonstrate that the uh, clothing was definitely more gender-neutral.
0: Was there traditionally like a a party or a celebration for the for the breaching?
1: I I don't know. I I don't I don't know that there was any kind of particular, you know, with little kids, I think, you know, you see him in his fursuit. I'm sure there was fanfare of some kind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But no, I I don't know enough about the tradition to know.
0: Okay. Yes. So then what were some other different stages of life for for boys and girls, uh, right, men and women, that had a, a special transition in terms of dress?
1: I think breaching is probably the one that I'm most familiar okay. with. And one might think that a corset might have been age-specific, but there were indeed children's corsets. They're maybe not as draconian as it sounds, but still, you know, it's placing upon young girls uh, concepts of modesty and um, control. So it certainly has its uh, implications. But as far as structurally, you know, not as tight-laced as, as some people might expect corsetry, 19th okay. century corsetry, to be. So you know, but that, that started relatively early. We actually have a, an infant's corset in mm. the collection. So okay. not age-specific, as one might expect. So it's sort of the opposite of what you were asking.
0: Oh, OK. One of the reasons for my question is, you know, uh, around the world and at different times and places, different cultures have had, for example, for women, different hairstyles mm-hmm. indicating marital status. So one of my favorites is Pocahontas, uh, the famous Powhatan chief's daughter. We're pretty sure that when she got married, Powhatan girls, their new hairdo, it looked like a bowl cut was what the like dignity of a married woman would be for a Powhatan woman. So I'm wondering in New England, right in Maine, so when a woman may be Either hit puberty, or was engaged, or got married. Did she, did she wear a different kind of, of dress, or did she wear a different style of clothing at any point during this century? Cover
1: well. I think for young girls and boys, there was definitely a stages and milestones. Okay. Um, for example, before a young boy would, would breaching the the length of the skirt would dif, would dictate how close to breaching you might be mm. or hairstyles where a young women, especially around the turn of the 18th to the 19th century you would wear your hair long or, or down to indicate that you hadn't come out you hadn't um, you know come out to society yet okay. so there are definitely indicators perhaps subtle indicators but definitely indications uh, for, for the age
0: so weddings themselves weren't as big of a fuss during this era, as for many people they are today, I believe the Freeman waistcoat was for his wedding. Yes. Are there wedding dresses in the collection? Oh, absolutely.
1: This? So that's part of part two. Okay. So our wedding collection, you know, before Queen Victoria married Prince Albert, the concept of the white dress existed, but wasn't the norm. Mm-hmm. Most women, even women across uh, social classes, wore their best dress or you know, either purchased or had a dress that they wore for a ceremony. But after Queen Victoria, the white wedding dress, the concept of the white wedding dress really took hold as um, you know, more traditional bridal wear. So our collection includes traditional wedding dresses from about the 1890s through the 1960s. We do have some stellar examples of what i call the best dress wedding dress bold copper dress that's in the that's in the Mm. exhibit right now and we do have an early example of a white wedding dress which is on display from 1832 but Mm. uh, that sort of transition to the white wedding dress in our collection Mm. you see about
0: 1890. okay are there any specific maternity clothes in the collection yeah
1: it's a really great question so there's a few people we actually just recently acquired some great maternity wear from the uh, late 20th century but the as far as the 19th century you know there are a few garments that one could possibly or maternity where there's uh, evidence of being let out in a way that would be suited but the concept of women going out and about when Mm. pregnant or in the, you know, in later trimesters is, um, less, you know, you, so they existed certainly, but identified specifically as that, that's, that's harder to tell. There's a, there's a couple, nothing that we have on display at the moment, but there are a couple that are, are let out in a way, but that that's making a judgment call. Right. Of course. (laughs) Not necessarily, nothing proven. Nothing in the, in the provenance. But we are actively collecting later 20th century, 19, post-1950s. And that's an area where we're not as strong. And we recently did get a few maternity pieces from those, which is a great addition to the collection.
0: So another life stage that is more gloomy, but was very common at the time. Mourning attire, as in with a U, the sad right. kind, was a, a very important part of dress and wardrobe before the modern period it did change over time could you talk about start us in say around right after the american revolution the role of morning wear and and who wear wore what and what it looked like let's say when the the united states was a new nation
1: well, our, our collection mm-hmm. here at Maine Historical is stronger in morning jewelry than okay. it is in morning dress, but we do have a few key pieces that are on display now. So in the late 18th century, which mm-hmm. we do have some lovely pieces of morning jewelry from the late 18th century, you see a lot more of what mon, one might associate with like memento mori, death heads, skulls, uh, more um, traditional is not really the right word, but... Death heads and skulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see a transition at the turn of the century, in the first part of the 19th century, to more subdued imagery. Um, weeping willows, urns, and um, birds, things of that nature. So you see the sort of the transition. And, and our collection of mourning jewelry uh, demonstrates that, I think, pretty nicely. Although we do have some lovely pieces from the late 18th century, which we would consider to be associated with the Wadsworth family, that we would consider to be... Pretty um, important to our collections. We also have a nice collection of hair work and the use of hair in mourning jewelry, most notably a lock of George Washington's hair given to the Wadsworth family by Martha Washington after the president's death. But as far as mourning clothing goes, you know, I think that in the 1830s, you really start to see this, this regimented custom of who wore what mourning garb and when. There were um, rules about what you wore depending on the person who died. If it was a spouse, and certainly women mourned, wore black, as it were, longer for a husband than a husband did for a wife. But if it was your uncle, you wore it for this amount of time. If it was your infant child, you wore it for a very short amount of time because of the infant mortality rate. Mm. If it was your cousin, it was for this. If it was a parent, it was for this. So you see a lot of really regimental societal rules, and published literature that tells you what you should wear and what and for how long. Crepe, bombazine, different fabrics were indicated as the ideal for different stages of mourning. And then, of course, there's black and then transitioning into gray, then transitioning into darker purples. So early 19th century. Well oh, that was the sequence just sort of, of a mourning spouse. Of a mourning spouse. Okay. So. You, and But you see those kind of shift over the 19th century. In the earlier 19th century with the 1830s and 40s, you see um, you know, sort of one set of rules. But then in the late Victorian period, in the 1880s, 90s, and into the turn of the century, you see they start to see more of the evolution of getting into grays and getting into purples. Because at the end of the day, it's a morning business. And again, with Queen Victoria... Um, when she was in mourning for so long it sort of heightened this interest in extended mourning so you started to see the evolution the practice really started to fall out of favor understandably around world war 1 you hmm. do see a break in american culture you do see a break in during the civil war for the significant amount of death it's not practical to be in mourning for the amount of loss experienced during the civil war but the practice reinvigorates in the late Victorian period, and then by the time you get to World War One, it uh, falls out of fashion.
0: Given that the remarriage rate, especially for widows and widowers with kids, was pretty high, I don't know, did this color change function a bit like a sort of a stoplight system of letting potential suitors know, like, all right, I've got X number of months before it's socially appropriate for you to come a and, and Did it work like that? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, okay. that's essentially what this is really doing. Communicating with the outside world, whatever version of the outside world you're engaging with, mm-hmm. depending on the time period and your gender would be communication. If you're in deep mourning and you're wearing a veil over your face, it's less likely someone's going to engage with you or knows that it's not appropriate to have a casual conversation, versus if you're coming out of mourning and you have less subtle notes, it still lets people know that you are mourning, but you're, you're a little bit more ready for social exchanges. So it's definitely a communication tool. Okay. And you know, and it's really class specific in many ways. Mm. One's ability to be able to afford the long, drawn-out wardrobe necessary to follow the mourning practice is is something that is more accessible for people with means. While people with working-class people might share mourning clothing or lend their mourning attire to someone else in mourning, so the amount of time you can afford to be in mourning varies. So it's also a social status in addition between, uh, to it being a communication
0: tool. That makes sense. And this is this predates your collection but certainly as a, you know, an early modern historian I'm familiar with this. I'm sure you are too. Like in the 1600s you see death was so common that these people frequently remarried at a pace that I think often surprises more modern people that like oh they really didn't waste any time and they just got married within a year and you have a bunch of kids and People die all the time, and so it was a fact of life. And so I can also imagine, as life expectancies started to lengthen in the 19th century, certainly the second half of the 19th century, excluding the Civil War, that maybe the mourning would appear more disruptive or dramatic because death was rarer.
1: To some extent. To some extent. Yeah, and then also your gender as well. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a man who loses the mother of his children was expected to mourn for less time. Uh, in an effort to remarry versus a woman who lost her husband uh, was required to mourn for longer and so there's a lot of layers to the different literally and figuratively mm. to the mourning culture in the 18th and 19th century and as you say when deaf with more prevalence you see more uh, mementos ways to remember people but not necessarily the, the, the culture around how long you're expected to wait before you remarried for practical reasons.
0: Switching to the lighter side of things, were there particular thinking about sending signals of you know, red light, green light, were there particular courtship fashions that telegraphed to people that somebody was single or you know, coming of age or coming out in a case of a, of a young woman? That, we, that you have in, in the collection. Well,
1: this, this is the transition of young women to more adult clothing, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that in our collection necessarily, this exhibit doesn't necessarily focus as much on that aspect of mm-hmm. life. Okay. Uh, probably what you do see in Northern Threads are examples of clothing that promoted modesty. And you can see what we call poke bonnets, those bonnets from the early half of the 19th century, really long, extended bonnets. What we would probably today look at, clothing that promoted social distancing, as it were. Mm. So you'll see those. So it it does um, promote modesty, which were idealized qualities for, well, women of any age, but young women in particular.
0: That's a good point. Although not all of the clothing in the collections promoted modesty either, and so, Again, sometimes modern people associate old either with homemade or with a greater modesty of dress than today. Are there any fashions in the collection that you think would surprise modern viewers with how not particularly modest or how forward they were?
1: I think that the turn of the from the 18th to the 19th century that right. sort of the the regency period I guess is what would one might closely associate with that it was not terribly modest mm-hmm. the really lightweight muslins which would normally have been worn with a chemise or a slip or in a corset but not always mm-hmm. and are uh, not as uh, as modest as one might associate with the 19th century so i always think that that's relatively surprising Mm -hmm. and you know that we have lucia wadsworth's assembly dress which is made of a white muslin a sheer white muslin that was worn during assembly season which is december i think something's really surprising is that you would go out in a lightweight muslin dress in december in maine i think is also kind of surprising
0: (laughs) that's just kind of timeless right that Young people going out not dressed appropriately right. for the weather because they want to look nice. Right. I mean, that just seems like something's never changed. Some things never change. Things never change. And when yeah. you think
1: about the kind of shoes, these little slipper leg shoes, lightweight muslin dress, December in Maine, not, you know, it's the concept of coats, really wearing a cape and you how you got from place to place, I think it is pretty timeless. Just yeah. going outside. Teenagers with no coats on, that's right. Sort of exactly. Thing. That's right. That's things. Right. Yeah.
0: The collection also has a really striking pair of moccasins made by a Penobscot person. Can you talk a bit about, I believe it was uh, 1834, yes. these were made. What I wasn't clear on when I saw them, were these moccasins made for sale? Or were they made for personal or, or use of friends and family?
1: Uh, it's unclear. So okay. they're attributed to a Penobscot Uh, an unrecorded Penobscot artist. There's an inscription on the inside of the moccasins that says either PFC or PFG, it's difficult to read, Roby, Bangor, 1834. So it's unclear on whether or not they were gifted in 1834. I mean, the early 19th century, whether it was a gift, whether they were purchased, how they came into the hands of Roby, who we un- unfortunately don't know much about either. And, and the beadwork is absolutely amazing. It was important for us to open this exhibition with a Wabanaki piece of clothing, which is, admittedly, we do not have a lot of that type of material mm-hmm. in, in our Uh, exhibition, but there's an opportunity to talk about how Indigenous items got into Mm -hmm. Western museums, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, with an active um, effort to collect what was perceived as a disappearing culture, and how that stands in contrast to the robust cultures that uh, are still uh, present Mm -hmm. today. So I think it's a good opportunity to showcase an important piece in our collection And that relationship to our collection, uh, admittedly not really knowing very much about how they came into the hands of Mr. or Mrs. Roby. I think that the PFC stands for Private First Class, but that Mm. it looks a little bit more like a G, so we can't tell if there's a... And research so far hasn't yielded anything. Roby is a common main name, but we haven't been able to determine who that individual is. And the inscription is definitely old itself, but how old...
2: It's hard
0: to say. The earlier Holding Up the Sky exhibit on Wabanaki History and Culture in Maine had a lot of great items that they shared with MHS, including basket work. Mm -hmm. Baskets and canoes were two of the things that not only did the Wabanaki have a strong artistic tradition that they made for themselves, but that they also made for sale to non-Native people. Does MHS have... Anything else in terms of clothing that was made explicitly for a non-native market by indigenous craftspeople?
1: Well actually we have pieces in the collection from DeConti and Brown, who are present day designers. Mm-hmm. Wabanaki uh, designers mm-hmm. and from pieces from twenty twenty. Oh. So um, you know that's made for the mm-hmm. the mar- the retail market, mm-hmm. and so that's probably the best representation of the clothing. As mentioned, we don't have a a lot of indigenous clothing, but it's uh, we also have a, a beautiful blanket coat that was made for our subsequent exhibition state of mind which has been added to the collection which is sort of a replica of a coat worn in the colonial era but made uh, by a designer Jennifer Neptune in the in the modern Mm. period so those two but we do have an actively growing collection of baskets made for the retail market beadwork for the retail market Mm -hmm. but from the 18th and 19th century not not as not as much
0: was there much of a retail market for moccasins in 19th century Maine?
1: i i don't know okay. the answer to that because
0: i didn't either so i was wondering why. i
1: i don't know i mean I, my limited uh experience with the retail market would be early 20th century mm. so i don't know if my not knowing makes okay. it not so or right. or the opposite and so that's what and that's another one of the puzzlers about how but gifted but for retail market i couldn't say
0: so clearly i'm sure you think highly of all the pieces that we mentioned here what is your favorite piece in this first part of the Northern Thread collection that we have not mentioned?
1: Oh, that is a really hard question. So I have a couple of favorites for different reasons. They, before mentioned, muslin assembly dress, I think is fantastic. And its connection to the Wadsworths means a lot to Maine Historical. There is another dress that if I was to wear, which is totally inappropriate for any museum professional to say, but if I was to wear any of them, there's a beautiful bustle dress from the 1870s with a red velvet bodice and a taffeta skirt. That's gorgeous. But as far as provenance favorite, I would say there is a silk brocade gown made from a 1740 silk, in the style of a 1770s dress, but made in 1824, likely worn to a ball for the Marquis de Lafayette when he visited Portland.
0: Oh, so it was like retro. Like retro, and, oh. and so
1: there, there's some, um, you know, it was either worn in specifically in homage to the Marquis, which makes perfect sense considering how beloved he was uh, in the United States, or you know, just colonial revival in general, but worn as fancy dress as a costume when the Marquis was, was in town. So it's older silk made into a slightly older dress around the time in, you know, in the, well, the end of sort of the early Republic period. So I think that's a, that's a pretty great story.
0: Interesting. Listeners who want to see part one of Northern Threads up to 1880, how long is it open until?
1: Uh, it's open now until July 30th. At that point, the main exhibit gallery, main with no E, uh, exhibit gallery will be closed uh, until August 12th when part two opens. And part two is open August 12th through December 31st. Over that break, uh, starting in mid-July through the Labor Day weekend, we have a small mini exhibit in the Wadsworth Longfellow House of clothing related to the families that'll be on display. So we have those sort of three parts components to Northern Threads, and then we have several companion exhibits, the cosmopolitan stylings of Mildred and Madeline Burridge, who were early 20th century fashionistas, and there's Parisian line drawings on display in the gallery that uh, they shocked from, as it were, as well as representing every particular, which are fashion drawings from the John Martin journals of 19th century Bangor, which is also a really great show. So we have a couple of companion shows. And then in the fall, we have a graphic t-shirt exhibit, as, as mentioned.
0: Excellent. So what is your favorite piece from Northern Threads Part 2?
1: Oh, I would say there is a floor-length 1890s green velvet coat from Berlin Germany that unfortunately we don't know the wear, but it does demonstrate sort of the appreciation for new fashion markets as it were but it is hands down one of the best things in the collection really amazing
0: excellent okay so look forward to seeing that yes Clearly, the event that you would promote is everything you've just mentioned here, so duly noted. Yes. So besides all of the great stuff at the Maine Historical Society, and we should put our plug in, so people who want to become members of the Maine Historical Society, how do they do that and what benefits does that get a history lover to become a member?
1: Well, of course, supporting the sharing and preservation of Maine history is the number one benefit, of course, but uh, membership also includes free admission to the gallery and to the house and to other programming in person when such activities take place. So we do have some great in-person members activities as well as curator tours. You can join online or if you're in Portland, uh, stop in to our location on Congress Street.
0: Excellent. Okay. Okay. So besides all of, of the great stuff going on here, what is something going on outside of the Maine Historical Society, be it a performance or an exhibit or a book that you think our listeners would be interested in?
1: Well, not completely outside of Maine Historical Society because it does include several pieces from uh, collections that are held here that, we, that are owned through a consortium is the 1830s trade banners from the Charitable Mechanics. Uh, association and Jane Nylander has a new book out called *The Best Ever Parades in New England, 1788 to 1940*, and that features some of those trade banners, which are our signature, like a really quintessential representation of, of Maine creativity in the in the 1830s.
0: Great! We will have links to everything we've talked about, including that book, up on our uh, Twitter and our Facebook pages. Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon.
1: (laughs) Thanks, thanks for having me.
0: That's our show. Show us some love in the reviews and come back soon. Next up, we're talking beer brewing and other spirituous beverages in colonial Maine while sampling some modern tributes to colonial recipes with Tad Baker, Dean of all things 17th century Maine material culture. What did colonial Mainers put in their beer? A better question is, what didn't they put in there? That's next time on Mainly History.